Welcome to a special recording of Attic Aficionados. I am enjoying the listener correspondence so much that I reached out to Brandon and said, what we need to do is start talking with some of our listeners, because they sound like really interesting people who have insights in a variety of little bits and pieces of eclectic culture, which Brandon and I may not necessarily have just off the cuff. One of the first folks that I wanted to record with is my sister-in-law, Mary. Mary, how are you? I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So I referred to you in a recent recording associated with the 1980s. I consider you an expert with regards to the 1980s, having experienced it to a good portion of its full potential. I would not say that I'm an expert, but I would definitely say that I lived through it. And survived. And survived. I did. I survived. Very good. Very good. So in terms of the 1980s, when you look back in your mind's eye, what kind of things do you think about? Music, really. We were trying to talk at work the other day about boy bands, and I mm -hmm. couldn't come up with any boy bands from the 80s other than Wham. But when I started listing all the, the different music that came out of the 80s, we had a huge span of music. Mm -hmm. So it kind of started with maybe Wham!, and then we went into like Depeche Mode and The Cure. And then we went into hair bands with mm -hmm. Def Leppard, Skid Row, Guns N' Roses, Madonna, mm -hmm. Neon. Gosh, all the net. We saw, we were so much netting, big hair, hairspray, lots of makeup, jewelry, bangles, gel shoes. I mean, I guess it just, yeah, it can go on and on. Really, what I think of is my high school time, more than early 80s, which so that would be mid to late 80s. That's the kind of time frame we're interested in exploring anyway. So let's talk a little bit about the music, because certainly a number of those bands were British bands. They were, yes, a lot of them. It was kind of like a mini British invasion in mm. the 80s. I think more than, because in the 70s you had the Eagles mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, American bands. And so it did feel like a, a second coming, a second British invasion for us. What are they called? Stockade and Waterman, the... You know, Kylie Minogue, I mean, all these kind of bands that came through very highly marketed, highly pitched. You know, I was interested by bands like The Cure and these kind of things that came through. I mean, Wham! was slightly created in some regard. But right. I've, I've seen The Cure in concert. I mean, they seem to be to be a real organic band. Talk about your early musical interests. Talk about, like, buying tapes or records yes. or this kind of stuff. I have always been a big radio fan, and I, mm. I feel like people talk about how radio has kind of died, and, and I don't agree just because I still listen to the radio. So I was the person that sat there with my radio, with my blank cassette in, listening to the Top 40 Countdown on record and pause so that I could get the song at the right moment and then cut it off when I was done. I actually don't have any of those tapes left. And I was thinking about them recently. I wish that I had kept some of them. But I spent many weekends recording the top 40. So yes, yeah, so I'm a top 40 fan. So in terms of the music at the time, I mean, obviously, the UK was completely alien. I mean, for folks listening, and you come from Southern California, you're yeah. a quintessential Southern California girl as as your sisters are as well. So mm -hmm. when you listen to British music, particularly the angst-ridden, I mean, Wham! didn't have it, but The Cure certainly no. had it. Talk a little right. bit about that. And Depeche Mode. Of I course. think it probably started with Depeche Mode, um, the, the People Are People mm -hmm. album. It was so different from anything that I had listened to before. And then that sort of morphed into The Cure and then The Smiths. But we had a radio station. It was called K-Rock down in Southern California. And I had grown up listening to... 
kind of my mom's music. And mm. so this was my first opportunity to listen to music that was very different and then also my own. Um, so yeah, so I, and, but I'm not very angsty, you know, <laughs> you know me, I'm not very angsty. Um, so, so I think I just kind of scratched the surface on it. Um, I know that there were probably a lot of other people that I knew that really knew the music. Um, like I had a friend who loved U2, mm-hmm. uh, which was my first concert was U2. And I think it was for the Joshua Tree album. But that's probably the extent of my U2 listening at that time was the Joshua Tree album. Before we get into your your mother's musical interest, because I think that mm-hmm. links very easily with psychedelia, which is something I wanted to talk about a little bit more uh, a little later on. But let's talk a little bit about the fashion and the big hair and all these kind of elements. I mean, how did you get this aspect of the culture? Was it through what other kids were wearing at high school or... Was it through magazines or these kind of things? How did you pick up this aspect of the culture? Both of those, actually. So magazines, uh, I do, I want to reference Madonna again. I do think that Madonna had a lot of influence over my 80s, my, my high school time. That's where the bad eyeliner came from and the lace outfits and the gel shoes and the big hair. So it was an easy transition from big hair that was um, kind of a glamorous big hair for Madonna into the big hair that was the rocker hair, because that came after that. And then, you know, just hanging out with girls. We watched TV. The MTV was pretty new, so we watched videos. And uh, we just, we experimented. We'd do each other's hair and just kind of found the fashions that worked for us. We had t-shirts, stretch pants, and things that were modified. So the sweatshirts that you'd cut the neck out of it so that you could kind of wear it off one shoulder. It was goofy and silly, but it was fun. It was great. Certainly in Australia, growing up through the same period of time, when Guns N' Roses came out, Mm -hmm. it was so different. And I've talked to people about this periodically. I mean, I had a similar feeling associated with NWA when it came out with Straight Out of Compton, also Public Enemy and the kind of rap sphere. But when Guns N' Roses came out, many of us hadn't had the exposure to bands like Metallica and Iron Maiden and these kind of bands where they had heavy guitar elements. So Guns N' Roses was really the first introduction to metal guitar. And I think that was so overwhelming for, you know, the kid in Australia. The fashion and these kind of things were secondary, but the music itself was just absolutely amazing and completely groundbreaking because obviously in Australia we had Wham! and these various other bands as well. But Guns N' Roses just appeared to take things in a completely different direction. In terms of that movement, I mean, you've talked about moving to, you know, rock hair. What was the music like at that time? Well, so there there were several. Um, in addition to Guns N' Roses, you had Motley Crue, mm-hmm. you had Poison, you had Skid Row, and they almost seemed interchangeable, where you mm. could pull one one person out and put the other one in. Uh, Metallica, I'd completely forgotten about Metallica, and I think Metallica seems to have the most longevity mm. uh, out of them. I I feel like I just recently saw James Hatfield somewhere <laughs> on um, like some some show. It might have been a an induction ceremony for, gosh, I can't think of what it was. It might have been the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, the thing about Metallica was it had, I mean, very similar to a variety of bands, it had a group of really solid followers, but it didn't really get its success until, I guess what's loosely called the Black Album or Metallica, the the self-titled album, because that had so many like crossover hits for them. I mean, you have one and these kind of things from their earlier work. But as you say, Poison, 
Motley Wait. Crue, and right. Guns N' Roses. I mean, Guns N' Roses had things like Sweet Child of Mine and Paradise City and these kind of things, which were immediately crossover. And Poison had a few similar tracks, I guess. I periodically listen to Poison again, but the Guns N' Roses stuff, particularly, well, really they had more albums and more albums of musical interest than I think Poison, unfortunately, probably just had a kind of staggered success. Obviously, Motley Crue as well had a following, but it just seemed to be a different following again than Poison and Guns N' Roses. So in terms of your listing, what, what was your early introduction to this hair metal period? You know what? It probably started, this is going to sound silly because this doesn't even seem like hair introduction, but it probably was Bon Jovi. Mm. Bon Jovi started, they were kind of safe. Mm-hmm. And then um, to me, it feels like Guns N' Roses were, it was, they were a little later. Um, I had friends that went down to, it might've been the Coliseum. They were in Def Leppard videos. Mm-hmm. So there were, so Def Leppard was a huge band for, for me in the early 80s, but I think that it probably started with Bon Jovi. It is interesting because Bon Jovi was, again, very much a kind of pop crossover. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I have a friend, actually, a co-worker or a former co-worker who was in a Bon Jovi video as well. He looks completely different now as an adult. Which one is it? It's the one where um, it's not Blaze of Glory. It's another one of those kind of quintessential Bon Jovi songs, but he's one of the crazed fans early on in the video where they just have a shot of his face kind of screaming out the lyrics. Uh, it's always fun to to go back and have these kind of connections with these kind of bands, obviously. It is. Yeah, it's really neat. Um, I didn't ever go do any of those videos, but several of my friends from high school, they went down, to, down into L.A. and they would be a part of these huge audiences for hours while they were filming these videos. And then that was the kind of the neat thing, trying to find them. Um, I don't think we ever saw anyone that I went to school with in any of the videos because mm. we're in a couple of Def Leppard videos and then they were in one Bon Jovi video. Mm. And the, the only thing I can think of is living on a prayer, but I don't know if that was it. There's a strange rap video where a friend of yours, because Michelle, my yeah. wife, made me watched this guy he was a latino rapper and that's one of your right. friends was a dancer oh, that's right yes yeah. oh shoot what was it Kristen? yeah you're right i can't think of who it is it's not was it rico suave <laughs> it was rico suave it was rico suave that's right yes and she's one of the dancers on the side yes. that's right well because then we also had you kind of touched on it a little bit we had an entire movement of um, like LL Cool J and mm. Easy E. And so I had friends that would listen that went right from hair bands into this, this rap music. And, uh, yeah, so there was a lot of music in the eighties, a lot of different types of music as well. Um, all within the, the, I would say in the time that I was in high school from 84 to 88 and, uh, music was, was constantly changing. It's interesting. The element of the bad boy. I mean, this is the crossover between hair metal and early rap is that it's the element of the bad boy, like the the marketing of this isn't safe, you shouldn't be listening to this, your parents would disapprove of you listening to this music, which is an amazing marketing tool and used very wonderfully with all these bands. Well, and it also goes with, I mean, with Madonna. I mm. mean, I think that um, 
I mean, when she had, oh gosh, she had the video where she had the three burning crosses Mm -hmm. behind her while she was singing. I mean, I I feel like my mom was like, you know, turn that off. You can't listen to that. So it's not just, it's not just the bad guys or the bad boys. It's, it's the bad girls too. (laughs) When she was rolling around on the MTV movie awards and the, 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 like, it wasn't even a wedding dress, but it was white and it was short and it was lace. Mm -hmm. And she was singing like a virgin. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you know, it, it seemed blasphemous to parents that this girl would do this, that this woman would do this, and that she was going to lead her kids astray. I have a lot of time for your mother's interest (laughs) in music. I mean, I absolutely love the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and these kind of bands, and that was the music that your mother was listening to, which I guess you grew up listening to previously, right? Right. Yes, James Taylor, um, John Denver, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm -hmm. Yep. There were even some James Brown albums. I've actually been through your parents' records before they were water damaged. And there was a bunch of really eclectic stuff, a bunch of like blues and soul and a bunch of really interesting stuff in there too. Yes. And I think that my mom had her records and my dad had his records. Mm. I don't know if when you went through it, she had like Bruce Springsteen born in the USA. Mm-hmm. And so she had, and then my dad would have Queen and it was like a fold out album. Mm-hmm. And then he had uh, Elton John, the the Yellow Brick Road, where he's like climbing through the hole in the wall. Yeah, they did. They had some really great albums, and they listened to a lot of music. My dad played the guitar for a while. Certainly, certainly. But I think what interests me, I mean, this is also my wife's connection as well, was sometime in the early 90s, I kind of get a sense of the, the middle sister, Melissa. I'm not sure how you fitted in with this. But the Grateful Dead became such a large part of my wife's life. Yes, it, it yes, it did, and it was. And I think I fitted I fit in on the fringe of it. Um, I was living at home, and this was something that they were really into, and it was just neat. And so I slowly started to work my way into it as well. I enjoyed going to the concerts with them. Um, Michelle has always had an interest in sewing and done a great job sewing. So she was always making things for us to wear. And, um, it was just, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a really great experience. And the reason that I won't be recording Attic Aficionados with Brandon next weekend is because we're all going to a Grateful Dead concert. We are. We're all going. Yes. Now you've been. You and I, Michelle went last year? I was, look, the Dead never toured Australia. That's okay. the first thing. So <laughs> I, when I married my wife, she had a shrine for Jerry Garcia that was set up in the house. And she had her dog, Charlie. I mean, yes. Charlie was just an amazing animal. And she used to take Charlie to the Grateful Dead concert. So he was like a dead dog he was. from the get-go. Yes. Yep. Uh, there were people that recognized him. Yes. Is yeah. it Charlie? Oh, Charlie's here. Yeah, it was great. And so, it was really nice. And that that's that it was such a nice community of people. And that's what I found fascinating. I mean, certainly my other interests in just general psychedelic history and things like that. I mean, the Grateful Dead are obviously centerpieces. And it was interesting actually going to the concert. It was more it was probably two years ago now that we went to see the dead. It was an amazing experience because it was at Levi Stadium, which is a huge mm-hmm. stadium. They're not playing at Levi Stadium. They're playing at the, the sure. Shoreline Amphitheatre in Mountain View, the one that we're going to. But Levi Stadium holds about 70,000 people plus. And it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's that, um... packed. It was yes. absolutely packed. And towards the end of the show, the clouds were kind of barreling in. This normally is a football stadium, so it's a huge space. The clouds were barreling in, so they were low probably at about 
I don't know, 500 feet, if that. And then a plane came in to land under the clouds as they were playing. And I was not in any way under the influence, although I mean, it's difficult to say a Grateful Dead show because right, the latent weed smoke is pretty thick. Right. But yes. it was the most amazing, sublime experience to hear these guys play. And they had the guy from Fish. Yeah, they had Trey Anastasio. Who was just an amazing musician. I mean, the old guys, the old dead guys... They do their thing. They had iPads, which was really cute. I mean, they had iPads up so they could see the words. So it was one of the few dead shows that you could probably ever see where they actually got all the words right. But Trey Anastasio is an amazing musician, and he held up his end so much. I mean, the the percussionists are great. Some of the Mm -hmm. older guys, you know, getting on a bit in time. But Anastasio was so vibrant and just carried the whole show through. We went to the second show at... Levi Stadium and I actually found out after the fact that a bunch of people I knew also went to that show and we just kind of communicated after the fact that you know we'd all been there but just as an experience I rarely I mean I go to some concerts not as much as Michelle my wife goes to but I'm rarely in such a large group of people all experiencing the same thing right yes yeah because everybody's really in tune um Mm. Melissa and I went, my, my other sister and I went a couple months after you and Michelle went. And we mm-hmm. went to a, the dead show here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. So they had replaced the Trey Anastasio with John Mayer. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it felt like it was the same thing, the same experience. I mean, the minute they started playing, I actually got teary-eyed because it was just exactly as it had been before, even though it was entirely different. And it just felt really neat. Everyone was still so excited to be there to see them. And it really is the only concert that I go to where I get that feeling. I don't go to as many concerts as Michelle, but I, I've i seen enough besides The Grateful Dead to know that they just are a very special concert. The thing that was interesting about the concert we saw was it was part of their 30 Well tour. Yes. So the narrative was this was going to be the last Grateful Dead <laughs> show ever. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, there have been so many artists that are doing that. But let me just point this (laughs) out in in the context. Let me me give (laughs) some context to this. So there was an additional emotion that this was, and for me, it felt very much like a bookend because I'd never experienced these concerts with my wife. This was such a huge part of Michelle's life that I had not been a part of, and the ability to be in her presence and enjoy the concert with her, and it was a long concert, it must have been, five six hours okay yeah because ours was pretty long as well yeah but the thing is they finished the fairly well tour and then all of them realized that they actually really like doing concerts right so then they as you say they got together with john Mayer, and the rest writes itself but it was an amazing experience in the sense of finality which i think is going to be interesting going to this one in mountain view because the background of shoreline is it was built by steve wozniak and bill graham uh, the Apple co-founder and Bill Graham, the concert promoter. And I spent 18 months with Wozniak and we used to go to Shoreline. I mean, I go to sometimes two or three concerts a week and be in Wozniak's box and just be there. I mm-hmm. didn't go to rap concerts, but I saw The Cure with Wozniak and I saw a bunch of other bands, uh, the Go-Go's, the B-52s. I went to at least two Red Hot Chili Peppers concerts. I saw Beck. I saw a bunch wow. of bands. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> and no, this was this was literally probably 
a nine to maybe 10 month period where I would, as I say, I mean, at its height, it was three times a week. Usually it was at least once a week. There was always a concert going on there. And it was such a large part of my social outing to just attend these concerts. And it was in some way a luxury. I mean, a lot of the bands I didn't really have much interest in, but the bands that I did have an interest in was really interesting. And I also discovered new bands through this process. I mean, Neil Diamond, for example. I'd never normally go to a Neil Diamond show, but, you know, went to Neil Diamond a couple of times. And there were a few folk, like the B-52s, I never realised what they were like in concert. And the Go-Go's are completely different. I mean, the Go-Go's are really high energy. I mean, Belinda Carlisle at the time would have been in her 40s, I guess. And really high energy concert. The Cure was amazing as well. I mean, the Cure just got... But out of all of them, I think the Red Hot Chili Peppers are by far the best concert band I've ever seen. I mean, their concerts are just absolutely amazing. And they have so many incidental, you know, things. I mean, Flea comes out and plays sets for 20-odd minutes, and he does all this kind of personalised area stuff where he's singing about various, you know, various cities in the Bay Area and things like that. I mean, they have all this really curious stuff, which is so heavily personalised, and you just think this is a great touring band. They're just as old as Belinda Carlisle. I mean, yeah. so these are guys that, that are acting like, like guys in their twenties putting on these shows. It's just amazing. I think the energy of concerts are so different. I mean, it's such a different thing than CDs and, you know, yes. this kind of stuff. The energy is just so much more present, but I'd never, I mean, Shoreline gives a somewhat artificial experience because it's a very, and it's interesting, actually, that we're going to be on the grass for The Grateful Dead. I've never been on the grass for any concerts. When Michelle and I have gone, we've always been somewhere. I mean, Michelle typically is further to the front than I am when I go to concerts with her there. Um, but I've never been on the grass before, so this is going to be an interesting experience. And, yeah, I'm interested in seeing the dead in a slightly... I mean, I don't know how many Shoreline can hold, maybe 30,000 at a pinch, but it's going to be a smaller venue, slightly more intimate, perhaps, than... Levi Stadium, which is a football field. Right. Yes. I've seen them at Shoreline. Now, Michelle said that Shoreline's changed a lot since when, since the time that we first started seeing the dead there. So I'm curious to see how different it is. Um, cause in my mind, it still looks like the know. stage is down front and then there's the yeah. seats, and there's the grass area. I, it, I mean, I was there in 2000 and it's identical to the way it was in 2000, but you were there in the mid to late nineties. So maybe it changed in that period of time. But certainly from my experience, I mean, everything is the same from right, the concession stands to the T-shirt vendors. I mean, from, from my experience, everything is the same. Right. That's the other part that we're, we're very curious about is whether or not they'll have the shakedown street. They were pretty minimalist on it yeah. when it was at Levi Stadium. And I just imagine that Levi Stadium, you have less security associated with Shoreline, but you still have some security and the security is pretty heavy-handed by general standards. So I'm not sure what they can actually do because there's not really the same kind of car park area. So it's going to be interesting how they actually do that part. I don't know. And at the time that, that we were going more regularly and they had the Shakedown Street, it was really people that followed the dead hmm. that were there selling things that they made. That's how they supported their ability to tour along with them. And I think that that's gone, which is probably why most of Shakedown Street is gone. When we went through Levi Stadium, they had probably two small lines. There was nothing, like you couldn't 
there was no glass for sale, for example. There was nothing that was in any way paraphernalia or drug related. It was very much basic T-shirts. There was a woman selling crystals. And I think even she was kind of barreled up and <laughs> moved out of the way when things started happening. So, yeah, I certainly, from the accounts, and I'm independent of Michelle and, and you folk, I've heard accounts of the Shakedown Street phenomena from the early 80s through to the, you know, mid-90s, because it was the Grateful Dead were the primary way that both cannabis strains and also psychedelics and psychedelic information and all this kind of stuff propagated. The dead were like a means of propagating all these kind of things because, as you say, there were people that toured, but also if you read anything about the phylomology of modern-day cannabis, a few very important components of this picture actually come from very specific Grateful Dead concerts where particular growers came out and they shared seeds and this kind of continued mm -hmm. on. So a majority of the cannabis that is commercially grown now has its origins with Grateful Dead concerts at specific times. Yeah, see, you know, that's cool, though. I kind of like that. That's neat to think about, that, mm. <laughs> that that carried on. Yes. The stories, and I read psychedelic texts from the 70s through to the present day, in fact, late 60s through the present day, many of them say... The first thing you need to do is when the Grateful Dead are in your town, you need to go to a Grateful Dead concert and just meet people there. Like this is the introduction to psychedelic culture and understanding is go to this concert and meet people there and immediately you will get all the references and everything that you need. And I think there's a notion of what's called find the others, right. which is a means of people in particular you know, spaces. I mean, I even use it with model rail radio. It doesn't have to be about psychedelics. That people will find each other out once there's this a community meeting point that people right. can get together. Now, the internet has changed that because the community meeting points now exist virtually, right. whereas That's they used to exist physically. Is the drug scene, you know, I mean, so a lot of people that went to Grateful Dead concerts, they did acid, mm -hmm. LSD, uh, mushrooms. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely had nitrous balloons. I don't think that any, I, or I'm not sure what of that is still available. When Melissa and I went to the Grateful Dead concert here in Las Vegas, it was at the MGM Grand. <laughs> so, so they had tables set up right out in front of the, the doorways to go in selling shirts. Those were authorized. And then there were just two guys with two backpacks and they were walking through the crowd, t-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. And that's actually who we bought our t-shirts from was that guy right there. Mm. Uh, if the drug scene exists still, um, other than the fact that people are still smoking marijuana at the, the Grateful Dead shows, which I didn't even know if that would be there. So, we go into Jim Grand and we yeah. walk through a, a, a line of police officers to get right inside of the arena. You walk inside the arena and there it is right there, just passing around. What's interesting about California and certainly the experience. So we bought our tickets, not through a scalper, but through an online distributor, we bought, right. <laughs> and so it was like a digital scalper. And when I went to get the tickets, Michelle dropped me off. And as I was walking back, I found, and I think I photographed and put on Facebook as one does, a medical marijuana bag, which had just been discarded along the side of the road as I was, you know, walking back with the tickets to meet Michelle. So my perspective, and what's interesting to me is, the weed that was smoked at the Grateful Dead concert was a different kind of weed than the weed that was smoked. I went to the Art of Rap about 
three or four months afterwards, the weed that was smoked at the Art of Rap was all like fruit flavoured. So okay. you'd smell blueberries and then there'd be grape over there and then there'd be like banana and citrus fruit and even things that smell like apples and these kind of things. And it was all really curious. Now, obviously, part of that is associated with the flavoured wraps, but part of it is actually the cannabis as well. Whereas the cannabis that was smoked at the Grateful Dead predominantly was like this deep sandalwood smell, which is completely okay. different and older. And from people I knew who were there, who had come down from Northern California and what have you, they're associated with kind of old growth cannabis that probably people in their 60s had picked up from their brother or whatever from Vietnam and this kind of stuff that is still yeah. cultivated and sold a very... But it's a different kind of cannabis. So I think the thing that interested me about the Dead show was that the authenticity and a majority of the people there were older. I mean, basically the dead ended with the death of Garcia in, in right. 95. So a majority of the people that were there were older than we were because Michelle, I guess, was 18 when the dead right. yes. ended. So I thought, well, these are actually like people that have come in from the mountains, so to speak, with their particular cannabis and this kind of stuff. And I'm not sure. I mean, certainly there was a lot of cannabis being passed around and smoked at the dead show, but I didn't get a sense of, I haven't even heard accounts of people, you know, taking acid or mushrooms or anything there. And as you say, the weed was freely passed around. So right. it wasn't really a sense that there were people selling it. It was just that there were, there was, joints floating around in the air almost literally and right. i think that is an interesting thing to synthesize because there were still effectively body searches as you came in but certainly within you know mgm and the casinos in vegas and this kind of stuff it's a different environment although i'm pretty sure we stayed at a couple of casinos actually around the time of your wedding and i'm pretty sure i smelt cannabis being smoked in white <laughs> and obviously now nevada is as california is in fact even more legal than california because california hasn't passed the legal legislation but nevada has actually passed the legal legislation now and you know anyone you don't need medical cards or anything anyone can buy cannabis in in nevada so yeah it hasn't started yet it's um it's soon very soon i think mm. it's in the middle of middle to end of june okay. you'll be able to do that they're still trying to get it together yeah, the stuff I see on YouTube is huge, like, factory farms of just, I don't know, like, Walmart-size indoor grow operations that apparently are, you know, going to fuel what happens associated with legal cannabis in Nevada. But it certainly is light years away. California is still sputtering. We won't have legal cannabis in California for at least another year because of the bureaucrats and the lawmakers actually fighting over what the final thing looks like so it's interesting i mean all the folk here if they're doing it legally as i noted with the little bag <laughs> the side right. of the street, are all like medical cannabis patients so one thing i did want to talk about a little bit because a theme that's coming through attic aficionados which i find really interesting through the listeners is this notion of why were things in a certain period of time like some time ago more interesting like musically and culturally and these kind of things than things are now? Right. That's a really good question. We had less options. I mean, there's just so many options available to people that it seems harder to focus on any one of them. So there's so many different types of music. I mean, I, well, 
I, I did say that we had a, a mini Brit- British invasion. Now with the internet, you don't have to be limited to just listening to music that, that you hear on the radio or that you see on MTV. You can listen to music from any country in the world. And that has really opened things up for people, but it also has made it so that then maybe not that it's harder to, to be popular because it's not because we, we know that a lot of people are very, still very successful. That might be a part of it. Just that, that people have more options available to them than ever before. I think there was a phenomena associated with, I mean, I, I reflect on this with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Having been to Liverpool, it's a horrible, I mean, apologies to our listeners in Liverpool, of which I'm sure there are some, but they still have bombed out, or they did 15 years ago, have bombed out buildings from the Second World War. It was the strangest kind of juxtaposition of poverty and right. a port town, and the Beatles had to play really hard to get out of that environment. They had to right. really be skillful musicians. We talked about Guns N' Roses as well. And, you know, all these bands, they had to really work very hard. Whereas now you have an interesting phenomenon where you can create a YouTube channel and start playing mm-hmm. your music on YouTube and you don't have to be the best musician. There are less barriers to stop you. You just need to produce content on a semi-regular basis and get known and create a following and build it that way. And I think, as you say, when the barriers for entry were so much greater, the bands that made it out, now some of it, I mean, obviously Wham and these kind of things, the the PR component, which is obviously what Stuck and Waterman did very well, was a large part of it and PR-driven bands. But actually, in terms of musicianship, you very rarely see modern musical acts that have the depth of musicianship because, really, you can start playing the guitar in front of a camera and film yourself and start singing. I mean, you don't even need a musical instrument and you can develop a following of millions of people. Yes. And I have been surprised sometimes when I'm watching an artist who's huge that they'll pick up a guitar and I go, Oh, they can actually play an instrument because so many people that are musically successful, it's just about the vocal. And and that's all it is. I just watched the finale of the voice. They don't have to have any musicality. Mm. They just have to have, the ability to carry a tune and to be likable as a person. And that's really different than someone that that really sat there and wrote out their lyrics and played multiple instruments and, and put in their dues and worked really hard. Yes, yes, it is very, very different. And I think it actually, certainly in the discussion of what has changed the culture and how's the culture changed in a way, that to me, actually having barriers for entry, although it goes against a lot of other narratives is an amazing means of filtering through. But then again, luck is a large component as well. I mean, the the barriers for entry has a luck component to it. Right, it does, yes. Yeah, because I can put up a YouTube channel and it I may not be as successful as someone who's doing the same thing that I'm doing. Mary, you have kicked off what will hopefully be a series of nice conversations with a bunch of listeners. And part of this as well is also, for me... Podcasting is a bit of a religion thing. It's about actually getting certain essences of humanity out to broader audiences through people's ears, obviously, but just to get a sense of the broader humanity of the world through audio. And what I like to do through these things is also illustrate to people that there's no magic in recording podcasts. It's actually something that anyone could do. The editing can get a little finickety. 
but I certainly encourage other folk to start podcasts. And my understanding is that you're interested in starting a podcast at some stage. Uh, yes, I would love to. And this has been a really great experience. I told you when you sent me the text, which was very surprising, it seemed very sudden. And I said I was quite nervous, but I am feeling very, very comfortable. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice. And I absolutely would love to do a podcast. I think that your wife and I would do a great podcast together. Yes, I'm yes. sure of that. I'm sure of that entirely. It will not be flattering to me, but I'm sure it will be a great <laughs> podcast. I, I, I bet it will be flattering to you. I'm sure yeah. it will. <laughs> we'll see, you'd, though. You'd, we'll see. <laughs> you'd have me as a listener at least. Perhaps a critical well, listener, but a listener definitely. Mary, thank you very much for the chance to chat with You're you. This welcome. has been an absolute pleasure. And this will go thank in the Attic you. Aficionados feed. I should give some background. The reason that we're recording tonight, normally Brandon and I record on a Saturday evening. He has another commitment. He can't do it. Hopefully we'll record tomorrow evening. But I thought this was a beautiful opportunity to record some audio and get some ideas out there. So thank you very much, Mary. It's been a real pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you. It was my pleasure as well, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, I'll see you in less than a week. Looking forward yes, to it. Yes, I know. Me too. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, Mary. Take care. All right. You too. See Bye. You.